0: So oh, good to be back. It's, uh, we were reflecting earlier today. I think it's been about almost seven years since I stood here, and you have been such encouragements to uh, Jeff and Caroline Thompson and now Chris Knowles uh, in the ministry of RUF International. Uh, I do have a very vivid memory of when I first began uh, through the trauma of leaving the sort of typical pastorate uh, my friend and your pastor, Hal Farnsworth, was a great encouragement to me. Uh, I did not even know that RUF International existed. I often call it the best-kept secret in the PCA denomination. And so I am very indebted to the support you've shown to Jeff, Caroline, Chris, Elaine, and I over the years. And uh, now Jeff has told you why Elaine is not here. Uh, we are very, very thrilled. Uh, by the good news that God has brought into our family. Uh, We have always had a very special place in our heart for Redeemer Athens. Uh, You were planted right in the heart of Athens, Georgia, and right on the edge of the University of Georgia. I've got a, a friend who's even older than me, Jeff, a man in his 70s, who has been a great example to me, and Back in the 19, early 1960s, he was the pastor of a small mill town Presbyterian church that was in rapid decline. But a world famous missionary spoke to him and said, Any church on the edge of a great university is on one of the best mission fields in the world. And since they were only a few miles from Duke University, he began to pray and they began to become a tremendous embassy of God's kingdom where many uh, university students were mentored over the years. Uh, We now are going to turn to God's Word in John chapter 4. And I think every pastor I've ever heard preach on this passage has focused on the conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well. A very famous and uh, significant passage of Scripture. But you'll notice that in the middle of the reading today, there will be a break. I'm going not to focus on... Jesus and the woman at the well, but rather Jesus' conversations with his followers, the disciples. Let us now give our attention to the reading of God's word. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the 6th hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, "Give me a drink." For his disciples had gone into the village, into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, "How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And then we have that break beginning again at verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him, coming to Christ. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, teacher, eat. But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor." And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. There ends the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, draw near to us in your Word and in your, by your Spirit that we may better understand and see and believe the good news which is for people of all the nations. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You, as a community of God's people, have been strategically placed in the heart of a city and at the edge of a great university. And that is hard for a Georgia Tech alumni to say. I'm so glad I'm not speaking to you as a campus minister anymore, <laughs> You are to be a people for God's praise and God's presence in this place. In this hour of worship, we come to serve our king in repentance and faith and worship. And that's why it's called a worship service. We gather to serve our king. In the Lord's Supper, we will be recapitulated under our head. We will be reconstituted, the body of Christ. The miracle will not happen there, but here. We come together in faith to serve our king. But then we will scatter, and we will scatter to serve our king by serving our neighbor in the name of our king. As I shared with you six years, seven years ago, the highest calling for a local church like Redeemer is to be an embassy of God's kingdom. It is here that we come under the laws and promises of our nation, our ultimate nation, our homeland. You enter an embassy, you come under the influence and the protection of that kingdom. And so this is an embassy where we gather. But it's as ambassadors that we scatter The reason I wanted you to eavesdrop with me on the conversation between Jesus and his disciples is they are still very much followers, still very much disciples, and not yet ready to be ambassadors. In this passage, they are still called his disciples, not apostles, because they still need more training before they can be representatives of God's kingdom and apostles of Jesus Christ. At first, they did not really share Jesus' vision and his mission. They're still learners, which is what disciple means. I've always loved the Chinese character for disciple. It means muntu. It's someone who's sitting at the gate of its, his mentor. So we're watching Jesus here mentor or train by his example and his words those who are his disciples or followers, because they still have their own ideas and their own prejudices and their own cockeyed notions of what it means for God to be at work in the world. It's only when they begin to see what Jesus sees and only when they begin to want what Jesus wants will they really share the joy that Jesus has. And so that is why we're talking today In this way, if you share in Christ's vision, then you, in a compelling way, must share in his mission, and then you will share in Christ's joy. If you share Christ's vision, you must share his mission, and then you will share his joy. And I'd like to walk you through this conversation between Jesus and his disciples in three ways. First, we will look at what I call eyesight, Christ's vision. Then we will look at appetite, and what a wonderful antipasto to the Lord's Supper. We will look at Jesus' mission, his appetite, and then we will look at his delight, and the promise that we can share in Christ's delight. So let's begin at the eyes and talk about eyesight. Do you share in Christ's vision? Notice once again verse 35. It's very clear that Jesus and his followers are looking through two different sets of lenses. Jesus says in verse 35, Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. I won't talk to you very much about what I do, uh, but you can find literature outside. But I will tell you this. I think I've discovered what my biggest challenge is. My biggest challenge as the coordinator of RUF International is to help Christians and to help local churches to see, to see that the world has come to America. There are today over 700,000 international students on American campuses. The United States of America has more international scholars than any other nation in the world. They come from South and East Asia, Latin America. They come from different religious backgrounds like Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism. You know, last week, a lot of people were listening to the State of the Union address and doing the fact checks. President Obama said, this, this is a quote, we are home to the world's best colleges and universities where more students come to study than any other place on earth. Fact checked. It's totally true. Uh, Shanghai Jiao Tong University every year lists the top ten academic universities in the world. This is a Chinese university that is telling its own students the top places in the world to study. And eight out of the top ten, excepting only Oxford and Cambridge, were all in America. So in this moment in God's history, and this moment in time, for some providential reason... More future world leaders and culture shapers are coming to America than any other place on the face of the earth. Problem. Some Americans have kind of weird prejudices about immigrants. My my wife's grandmother was a poor girl from Italy who came to Ellis Island when she was 16 years old. But you know... Whatever we think about immigration, the Lord, throughout the Bible, welcomes strangers and foreigners, and I can just rattle off a quick list. The second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, comes out of God's immigration policy for Israel. Israel had been resident aliens first in Egypt and later in Babylon. And they were called to pray for the land of their captivity. The whole Old Testament story of Ruth is about a resident alien who became part of God's people. The first Christian on the continent of Europe was Asian. Lydia, who came to Philippi because of an economic opportunity in a Roman colony. And of course, Jesus is the ultimate resident foreigner, because he came to his own people from heaven, and his own people rejected him. So my work is keynoted on verse 35. I tell you, open your eyes. My work is to train campus ministers, churches, and Christians to practice what the Bible calls hospitality. Loving strangers and foreigners if, as if they were your families and friends. Okay, let's go back to the text, this eyesight problem. Jesus was looking through one set of eyeglasses, and the disciples were looking through another set of eyeglasses. And there was a difference in what Jesus saw with his spiritual eyes and what the followers of Christ saw with their physical eyes. They were in Samaria, the region of Samaria. It's a place where foreign-born people had come to settle in Israel. And the native-born Jews did not particularly like them. In fact, even though it was shorter on a trip to go through Samaria, oftentimes the Jewish people would route themselves away from Samaria because, as the Bible tells us, Jews do not like to have any dealings with Samaritans. You notice that we read that Jacob's well was there and that Joseph and Jacob had both once lived in this city called Sychar. But as we Americans sometimes say, the neighborhood had changed. This was a historic area where Joseph, Jacob had once lived, but now it was full of Samaritans. And so here in John chapter 4, we read that Jesus and his disciples, and I love the way John plays with words, they had to go through Samaria. Why did they have to go through Samaria? Well, if you ask that question to the followers of Christ, they would say, we have to go through Samaria because we've got to buy food. You see, what they were doing is they were looking over here and they were looking over there and they were saying, wait a minute, it's going to be four more months before the wheat and the barley and all the grain is harvested. And so they say four more months before the harvest. And so if Jesus and his followers were going to not faint outright on their long journey, they had to buy fruit, food from the people that the Jews don't deal with. They had to go buy roast beef sandwiches from the Samaritans or otherwise they were going to fall out. Let me ask you some questions. Why are you in Athens, Georgia? Why are you here? I know what the university students will say. You came here to go to a great university there. I did it again. You came here to study. Okay, that's great. Maybe for some of you professional people, you came here because your job brought you here. Maybe you're faculty, maybe you're a business person, maybe you're in healthcare. But the question is, did you really want to be here? (laughs) Would you have preferred to be somewhere else? You know, in this economy, having a job is a great thing, no matter where you live. So would you rather be somewhere else? What brought you here? Does God have a bigger purpose for your being here than you are aware of? I love to meet an international scholar on campus and say, you know, it's not an accident that we met. And as they begin to investigate the gospel of Jesus Christ, I love to say, you know, you came here to get your Ph.D. in civil engineering, but could there be a higher purpose for your being here on this campus And in this investigative Bible study, you see, the disciples looked out and said, with their natural eyes, there was a big problem. They had to do business with foreigners. But when Jesus looked out through his eyes, he saw an opportunity. And what was that opportunity? (laughs) It was a Samaritan woman who had come out to the well And in just a few moments, Jesus crossed three barriers, a gender barrier, male talking to female, a cultural barrier, Jew talking to Samaritans, and a moral barrier, a rabbi talking to an immoral woman who's lived a rather loose life. And so by the end of the passage in verse 29, she's going back into town saying, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And then in verse 42, the town starts coming out and they end up saying, we no longer believe because of what you said. We've heard for ourselves that this man is really the savior of what? The world. Let me meddle. Is Jesus your personal Savior and Lord? I pray so. Is Jesus the Savior of your children? You pray so. First thing I do this afternoon when I get that little grandbaby in my arms is I'm going to pray for her to come to know Jesus at an early age. But how big is your ice spread? Is Jesus your personal Savior, your church's Savior, your family's Savior, or is he the Savior of the whole world? Your family could go on a short-term missions trip by walking about three blocks away because the world has come to Athens, Georgia. Do you share in Christ's vision? Let's talk about appetite a moment. Do you share in Christ's mission? Look at verses 32 through 34 again. He, that's Jesus, said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Uh In my last year of campus ministry, I went up to an elder of a local uh, Presbyterian church. He's a corporate attorney, and he works in Midtown Atlanta. And yet every Tuesday night with his wife, he would come onto the campus, and still does, with his wife. And they serve as table discussion leaders. Uh, About 85 foreign-born scholars from all around the world. Come to a free meal in the faculty dining room. That's uh, basically contributed by 13 churches in the Atlanta area, and uh, and then they have optional. They're free to leave, but they have optional investigative Bible studies. And so, I went to this attorney elder and said, "You know, you really make a big sacrifice to come from your workplace every Tuesday evening." To be a table host leader with your wife. And he said to me in all sincerity, he said, you know, Al, the really hard thing is not that. The really hard thing is to go home at night and try to go to sleep after I've been sharing the Bible with Muslims, Hindus, atheists, and Buddhists only eight miles from my home. That's appetite. That's not cognitively thinking about missions. That's Eat, sleep, and drink in it. The disciples had to go through Samaria for food, but that's where John's double entendre comes in. Jesus had to go through Samaria for a different reason. (laughs) You see, through their eyes, they had to go through Samaria to buy sandwiches. But Jesus' eyes, he had to go through Samaria to do God's work. Not only was there a difference in eyesight, there was a difference in appetite. Here was the scene. The disciples go to buy, you know, they go to McDonald's or Burger King, and they're coming back. And they're tired. And Jesus' followers are, are, are really tired, and Jesus is tired. You know, my world missions professor used to say, sometimes we try to be more spiritual than Jesus. Jesus was tired. He shared our weaknesses. He shared our humanity. The problem was not humanity. The problem was attitude. They had to go through Samaria to buy food. When they got back, they found Jesus, and he was refreshed. Refreshed? It says it was the sixth hour. That means it was about midday. You know, most people in the world have have better sense than Americans at midday. You go home. You get out of the sun, you have a bite to eat, and you have a siesta. And Jesus is out in the hot, blazing sun with absolutely nothing to eat. And the disciples come back with their sandwiches or whatever they went to bring. And they said, teacher, eat something. But he said, I've got food that you know nothing about. And they start looking at each other and saying, who brought him food? Could somebody have brought Jesus food? What was it that refreshed Jesus? What was it that reinvigorated this weary Lord Jesus Christ? He was busy doing his God-given work, finishing the work that the Father had given to him, being the Savior not just of the Jews, but the Savior of the whole world. Uh, I've told Jeff and the other campus ministers that when... Christians in local churches get involved with international students. The question of support takes care of itself. I'll never forget one Tuesday evening, there was a lady who was sitting at a table having a conversation, and one international scholar looked at her in the middle of the study and said, Are you saying that Jesus Christ is still alive? And because we'd run short of food that night, she went over and wrote a check for $400. He said, order more food. Because her appetite was not for the food. Jesus is still alive. Okay, I'm a medal again. A book that I've recommended to Jeff and the other campus ministers is called The Elephant and the Dragon, The Rise of India and China, and what it means to the rest of us. The author in that book says this. China is the factory of the world. And I've seen that. We we took a group of young women from uh, who just arrived from China out to Walmart to buy their rice steamers and their utensils to set up their apartments and their dorms. And one of the more clever girls came up to us and she had a big rice steamer box in front of her. She said, everything here is from China, just like me. <laughs> so... China is the factory of the world. India is the back office of the world. You know, your income tax may be prepared in in India. That call center may be in India. And America are the consumers of the world. China, the factory of the world. India, the back office of the world. And America, the, the consumers of the world. Now, we would be very naive to think that we as the Church of Jesus Christ are immune from the consumerism in our culture. So the question is: what are you consuming? I've had 30 years as the as, as Jeff would say, the typical pastor, and I know how weary Christians can be with committee meetings and programs and all the things we want our children to consume that are vended by local churches. When was the last time someone looked up into your face and said, are you saying that Jesus Christ is still alive? I tell you, it is an amazing experience. One special friend of becoming, one special blessing of becoming a friend to internationals is you begin to see Jesus not just as your Savior, the Savior of your church and family, but the Savior of the whole world. You'll get a bigger picture of the world. Uh, I know of a church, I told Pastor Farnsworth and the elders about this, one of our sister churches who have decided that foreign students at their university should be their top priority, and their reasons are we want our members to develop an appetite for all world missions. Are you refreshed with the things that refresh Jesus Christ? You know, the promise of God to Abraham was that through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I ha- I'm guilty of this. I pray for God to bless me, I pray for God to bless my family, my little granddaughter, but I need to remember that God has called my family to be a blessing to the whole world. Let me talk to you parents before we move on to the last point. As In God's plan and his providence, my children, who are now adult and married and parents, grew up in their younger years in Miami, Florida, a great international city. I had so many people around the Presbyterian Church in America say, oh, you have to live in Miami, Florida. What a horrible place. That's a hard place to live. My children grew up with an appetite for the world because the world was right there. They came to love Cuban food. They came to meet Brazilians. They they just came to imbibe the world. You right here in Athens, Georgia, don't have to live in a big, complicated metropolis like Miami to experience the world, because it's just blocks away from you. Well, finally, let's look at delight. Do you share Christ's joy? Look at verses 36 through 38. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. The the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you've not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Who is this sower? Who is this reaper? What is this shared joy that Jesus is talking about? You know, I don't want to be dishonest. Cross cultural work is very complicated. I'll never forget the first time my wife and I had three couples to our home one from India, one from China, one from Turkey. My wife is 50% Italian, so the first couple through the door were Chinese. My wife would not hug the Chinese girl, and she became like a stiff board. And immediately my wife realized don't hug Chinese people. And then our Indian friends came to the door, took off their shoes and we greeted them. And then the Turkish Turkish couple came through the door. We'd never met them before. They immediately grabbed us and kissed us twice on both cheeks. As evening came to a close we looked at each other at the door and just started to laugh. It is a lifelong education process to develop friendships from around the world. But I have to tell you something, and, and nothing has reignited my passion for the gospel like hearing the gospel through international minds and mouths. If you have gotten stale in your understanding of the gospel, just start discussing it with an international. Last night... One of your church interns spoke about how uh, East Asia, Japan, China is an honor-shame culture. It's not a guilt-and-duty culture. I'll never forget one night. I was discussing a very familiar passage, John 14, with a Chinese professor who had come for a six-month visit. And he said to me, what does Jesus mean by my father's house? So I'm trying to think through this on an honor-shame basis. And I said, well, professor, the Bible teaches and Christians believe that the whole world of nations has dishonored God and shamed God and turned away from God's face. And the Bible teaches and Christians believe that Jesus is God's eternal son and God the Father sent him into the world that had dishonored God to take us back to his house, to his home in heaven. And so for Christians, heaven is a family place. And that's why Jesus calls heaven my Father's house. And this professor looked at me and he said, are you saying that Jesus has the key to heaven? And I said to him, You have a great insight there, my friend, and let me tell you a true story. I said yesterday when I returned to my home from the campus, on my kitchen table, I saw something that I really needed, but I had not put it there, and I knew immediately because I'd discussed this with my son that my son had brought it to me, but my son is married and has his own home, so like you just suggested, my son has a key to my home. And so when I came home, I saw on my kitchen table a gift from my son who had the key to honor his father. And then I looked at the professor and said, but you know, you couldn't do that. If you had wanted to honor me as Laure, your teacher and wanted to bring me that, you couldn't have done that because you couldn't have come in my home without being a thief or a robber. But then I said to him, there is a way you could come to my home. And his eyes got enormous. I could come with your son. I said, and that's the good news. You can come with God's son. So there is a delight in seeing God open eyes and hearts. But notice here, it's a shared joy. Sower and reaper will be glad together. Verse 38, I sent you to reap what you've not worked for. Others have done the hard work. We need to close and understand what he's talking about here. I think Jesus, in part, is referring to Psalm 126, 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. But he says, our Lord says, other people have done the hard work of sowing, and you have been sent to reap what you've not worked for. Let me explain this by personal example. Why are you here? We heard the Carters. Why do Japanese friends want to understand the good news? Why did that Chinese professor want to come to a dinner and discovery program? Why did my Indian friend who grew up Dalit in an untouchable caste come to know God? None of us did the hard work. It was Jesus who sowed in tears that we might reap with shouts of joy. This same gospel says Jesus is the grain of wheat that had to die for there to be a harvest. So for you to be sitting here or for Indians and Chinese and Nepalese and Vietnamese and Venezuelans and all those other people to be gathered around the throne of God, why did that happen? Why, why, why? Because other, the other one did the hard work. Our Lord sowed in tears that we might reap with shouts of joy. And so it will be said among the nations, Psalm 126, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. My dear friends, as you... Come and taste an antipasto of the kingdom today. I'm praying that we all will share Jesus' appetite for missions. That it not be just a matter of sending money or praying, although those are very important. But that because God has put you where he puts you, that you will begun, begin to imbibe missions. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see the world at our doorstep. Lord, help us to see with your eyes, to share your vision, so that we might have an appetite for your mission. Lord, we want to enjoy our relationship with you. We are about to receive an appetizer of the Messiah's feast as we taste and see that you are good to us. Help us to remember that a great feast is being spread in the sight of all the nations. And help us to share your joy. Thank you that you did the hard work, because if you had not died, there would not be a harvest. Thank you for sowing in tears and now allowing us the privilege of reaping with joy. Make this church an embassy of your kingdom in the sight of all nations at University of Georgia.